those of you who don't know me very well, you, or you may know my background, but you know that I was an inquisitive child. I like to ask a lot of questions. In fact, I was a parent's worst nightmare around the house because I'd grab the toaster and tear it apart to see how it worked and, and not realize how to put it back together again. And then my parents had to buy new toasters and hair dryers and such things. So I considered myself an inquisitive child. Probably the worst case of that was taking a butter knife and sticking it in the outlet in the wall to see if there was electricity in there. I wanted to know where the power was coming from, and so, so I risked my life to find out the answer to that question. Many of us would consider ourselves inquisitive people. If you could ask God one question, what would it be? If you could ask God one question and one question alone, what would you ask Him? Would it be, does Adam have a belly button? Would it be, why did you make such strange-looking animals? Giraffes, hippopotamuses, elephants. Maybe you'd ask him, why do babies die? When did Satan fall? Where did evil come from? Why are there wars, famine, starvation? What would you ask him? You had one question, one shot. What would it be? Certainly some of these questions are idle curiosity. Others are more a matter of a profound nature. But I think all of us are inquisitive people by nature. And I'd like to suggest to you this morning, but there's no more relevant question to ask God than the one that is asked and answered in Psalm 15. No more question that you could ask that would be more important in life than this question in Psalm 15. I'm going to have you turn there in your Bibles this morning Psalm 15, in my mind, stands as the ultimate Q&A. It is the ultimate Q&A. It is the ultimate question, and it is the ultimate answer. Turn to page 558 if you're not there already in those pew Bibles that you have before you. And let me just read the passage for you. O Lord, who may dwell in your tent, pardon me, abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. As I said, there There are lots of questions you could ask of God, but probably no more serious question could I think of than, God, what would it take to abide in your presence? Who can abide in the presence of God and live? It's a pretty important question, don't you think? The Hebrews believe that in writing this psalm, David had reduced the 613 commands of the Mosaic law, and he had shrunk them down to 11 character qualities that defined what kind of person could be in the presence of God. They further believed by tradition that Isaiah took that a step further. And in Isaiah 33, 14 to 15, that Isaiah shrunk the qualities down to six. So turn there, just listen as I read. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? 
He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity. He who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe. He who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. So you see you had the 613. Now we've uh, whittled it down to 11 in Psalm 15. And here in Isaiah, we've whittled it down to 6. Micah took that a step further in Micah 6a. And he boiled it down to three character qualities. What does the Lord require of you? He requires you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. As if that weren't shrinking it down enough, Habakkuk took it one step further and shrunk it down to one command. What is the one thing that God requires? Habakkuk 2.4. The just shall live by his faith. Faith in God. Faith in God is the one thing that the Jews boiled it down to that they believed was required to be in the presence of God. In Psalm 15, it's important for us to understand that David is not really asking identity. He's not saying who specifically can dwell in God's presence. He's asking the question, what kind of person can dwell in the presence of God? What kind? What kind of person? You know, just take a look at Psalm 15 with me again real quick. Do you see this question in the opening verse? Do you see how it's like a twofold question here? Who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Some think there's sort of a temporary aspect and a permanent aspect to this. I'm not so certain about that, but the idea of twofold questions in Hebrew literature was, was meant to really catch your attention, to really startle you, to, to cause you to stop and think about the question. It's a, it's a twofold question here that we need to see. Turn over to the right, just to Psalm 24.3. There's very few places in the Old Testament where this happens. We already saw it in Isaiah 33, but here in Psalm 24, the same questions, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? And it's the same thing. And then he begins to answer the question. The funny thing is, in the few places where it occurs, at least in these three instances, it's always talking about who can remain in the presence of God and live. What kind of person can dwell in God's presence? So this is very important. This is, this is an important question. Not so much Adam's belly button, but this is an important question. What kind of person must you be to remain in the presence of God? Let me just say, just by way of clarification, this message is about sanctification, not salvation, okay? I want to say that right on the front side. This, is, this psalm is about the outworking of righteousness in a believer's life. This is practical righteousness. This is not a grocery list of what somebody needs to, be, needs to do to be saved, okay? This is not a checklist. If I do all these things, I'm okay with God. That's not the point. The point is, this characterizes the person. This is a, a righteous man who loves God, who loves his word, and allows it to transform his life. So this is reflective of a saved person's character. This is not a checklist of what to do to be saved. Is that clear? Secondly, these things are only possible to the point that the Spirit enables you. If you do these things in the flesh, they merit you nothing. They, they, they're worthless. Okay? The Spirit empowers us to walk in obedience to God's revealed word. Galatians tells us that the Mosaic law does not save anybody, nor does it sanctify them. Right? In fact, if somebody, a believer, would have put themselves under the law, it would only inflame sin in their hearts. The same with an unbeliever. If they try to be saved... By placing themselves under the law, it will only inflame sin in them. So, 
The law is not to save. It, it defines sin. It describes sin. It identifies sin so that we know what it is, so that we know how to relate to God. We are saved by faith alone, as James says, but not a faith that is alone. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but there ought to be fruit and evidence of a person's faith in Jesus Christ, right? So, one author said, the faith that works does not save, but the faith that saves works. So, Psalm 15 has an 11-part answer to this question, who can dwell in the presence of God? It's an 11-part answer, which I've taken, and like the Hebrews, I've shrunk it down into four areas of life. (laughs) I'm not adding to God's Word, I'm just making it more preachable. So four areas of life. There is your walk. You see that on the back of your bulletin there. There is your walk. There is your witness. There is your wisdom. And there is your wealth. If you are saved, your faith will show up in these areas of life. That's the point. A saved person will reflect the character of God. And so this morning... We're going to look at four areas of life that absolutely must reflect faith so that we might abide in the presence of God. It's that simple. The first area that must reflect faith is your walk. Your walk. Look at verse 2. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. So, Verse 2 describes what the righteous man is in contrast with verse 3, if you'll notice that, which describes what he is not. Now, even though the word he is used throughout this psalm, I want to tell you this is a, and it's about as heavy grammatical as I'll get, but this is a generic masculine, which means that it could be anybody. It doesn't have to be a guy just because the word he is used doesn't mean it has to be a he. This is anybody who wants to dwell in the presence of God, male or female. Okay? This is, this is important for you ladies, too. Don't think, boy, I hope the guys in the room are hearing this. And I see the elbows going already. But notice here in verse 2, it's three verbs. He, he walks, he works, and he speaks. Right? And these are inwards, if you will. He's the one walking, working, and speaking, which means in this sense they're being used more to describe the man than they are the activity. They're, they're what we call attributive. In, in other words, they describe the man, what he's characterized by. And he is the one walking with integrity. He is the one working or literally doing righteousness, and he is the one speaking truth in his heart. That's the kind of person that can abide in the presence of God. That's what his walk needs to look like. The idea here with these three things is that they pile up together and they form sort of a a totality. They're looking at the totality of the person. They're not aimed so much specifically at how a person walks, and in this sense it's lifestyle conduct. It's It's the totality of the man, everything he does. Having said that, though, if you wanted to divvy it up a little to get your arms around it a little better and take these individual statements for what they're worth, you may want to write these down. I'll give you three headings here, okay? The distinction between them would be the manner of your walk, the merit of your work, and the motives of your will. Okay? Everybody got that? Let me repeat that one more time. It would be the manner of your walk, the merit of your work, and the motives of your will. Let's just look at this first one really quick here. The manner of your walk. He who walks with integrity. As I said, it's literally the one walking, and the word integrity actually is the word cleanness. The one walking in cleanness. 
And it, it's the idea of walking means, uh, as I said, a lifestyle conduct. He walks in integrity and purity. He walks in integrity and purity. And the Proverbs are loaded with examples of this, right? There is the way of the wicked, the path of the righteous. Uh, they're contrasted throughout the Proverbs. As has already been mentioned, and I'll talk more about this next week, we are teaching a Proverbs class, so this would be an ideal time for you to spend hours and hours in the book of Proverbs understanding biblical wisdom. But the manner of your walk is what's being looked at here, and it's, it's, it's like Ephesians 4, right? Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And how are we to do that? We walk in unity. We walk in love. We walk in wisdom. We walk in delight, right? So the same concept of the Old Testament and how you conduct your life has been moved to the New Testament. And it's the same type of thing. It's how you conduct your life. What are you characterized by? What are you characterized by? Secondly, the merit of your work. Uh, I tread lightly on saying work and merit together in the same sentence because I don't want you to get the wrong impression. But it does say the righteous do work, right? They work. Literally, they do righteousness. They are characterized by doing righteousness. And again, this is sanctification. This is not salvation. We can't earn our righteousness. Our righteousness is where? It's in Christ, right? All of our righteousness is in Christ. We don't have any righteousness within ourselves. But God has saved us so that we might walk in the works that he has prepared for us to walk in. Correct? Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. Why don't you go ahead and turn there, page 1170 in those pew Bibles. And it says in verse 8 of chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which good works? The ones which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Okay, so this idea that I can be saved and I don't have to do anything, I don't have to reflect the character of God, I can just be the same old person I was and just stack Jesus on top of of my life. That is a misnomer. That is not true. Children of God imitate God. They reflect His character. They do righteousness. Right? Thank you. Third, the motives of your will. The motives of your will. It says He speaks truth in his heart. This apparently refers to somehow formulating a statement in the heart, in the desires, in the affections, and having it come out his mouth. And normally you would expect speaking truth to be followed by upon the lips, right? But here it's speaking truth where? Inside. Inside. So when you, when you consider all of these things, you think, well, who would know if I was doing these things or not? Who would know if I was walking with integrity? Who would know if I was doing righteousness? Who would know if I was speaking truth where? In my heart. Who's going to know that? There's only one person I can think of. And that's the one that weighs the motives and the judgments of the heart. That would be God. Right? So what does it take to be in God's presence? God has to look upon the heart and see that you're His. It's a disposition of the heart which leads to this speech that's being evaluated. Right? It's not 
so much the speech, so much as the origin of it and what kind of speech it is. A heart warped with sin and deception leads to wrong patterns of behavior. Would you not agree? A heart that speaks lies and deception lives out those things in the pattern of their behavior. A heart that speaks truth to itself leads to right behavior. And the point of all of this is, as I said, it expresses totality. The the point of all of this is that a safe person has had their affections changed inwardly, which means that their behavior outwardly reflects that change. Okay? They conduct themselves differently because they know God and they love God. And the Scriptures sanctify us. Why? Is this some kind of mystical book? Is it like a talisman that if we if we rub it enough on the outside, it'll change us? No, it's, it's because this book reveals God to us. And if we know God, and if we know His character, we're going to be different. Right? As believers, if we know God and we love God, we're going to want to imitate God as beloved children. That's why we read the Scriptures. That's why you have to saturate your mind with the Scriptures. You have to renew your mind. You have to think differently. It's like, I've said this before, it's like the universal solvent. For those of you who are chemistry buffs, what do you do to dilute something down? You add water to it, right? How do we dilute sin in our lives? We add Scripture and lots of it until we flood our mind with nothing but the Scripture, and then sin becomes less and less a part of that. How do I say it? It's less and less concentrated. That's the best way to say it. Sin becomes less concentrated in your life. Truly knowing God must absolutely change a person, right? Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. This is... This is a stumbling point for some people, and it is an issue in the church today. Lordship or no lordship? You think there's really an argument there? Is Jesus Lord or isn't He? He absolutely is Lord. And and if you are a child of God, then you must change. You will reflect the character of your Father. And if you have not changed, since when you first came to Christ, then you better be asking yourself some questions. Right? Like this one here in Psalm 15.1. That's a good place to start. On the other hand, if your outward behavior has changed, but it was not wrought by the Spirit of God, and you've just conformed to some feigned sense of morality some external righteousness, then you're deceived also. You're a hypocrite. The heart is desperately wicked, folks. It will deceive us every time. It will deceive us even into thinking we're believers when we're not. If there has been no change in your life and you've been a believer for 30 years and you're still wallowing in the same sin patterns, you ought to be asking yourself some questions. The backwash of easy believism has gripped the church. We're living in the backwash of it. Walk an aisle, pray a prayer, and you're saved. Today's your birthday. Hallelujah. But are you going to persevere till the end? Are you going to do business with the sin in your life? Are you going to pursue Christ? Is your life going to reflect the character of God? Or is it just something I did one day and added Jesus to the rest of my life? But there's been no radical transformation. A person of genuine faith loves to walk cleanly. They love to work righteousness. And they love to speak truthfully because it reflects the character of God and His Word. 
You know, when I work around the yard, a lot of times on the sprinklers and stuff, I will get really nasty, dirty, right? Covered in mud and all wet and soggy. I even have to take out my clothes out in the garage. And, and I, I'll, like, have a date with my wife planned, and I'll be working around the yard. And, and the idea is that I, I get so dirty that I've got to come in the house and I've got to clean up. I've got to clean up before I can go on the date with my wife, right? She's not going to want to go somewhere with me looking like that. Right? She'll tell you that flat out. You're a disgusting pig. Where's the pressure washer? So you got to get cleaned up. And the, and the idea here is that you have a date set with God, don't you? You have a date with Christ. Right? I mean, metaphorically speaking... You have an appointment set to meet Christ, right? And what does the scripture say? Everybody who has looked forward to that hope of Christ's return does what? They purify themselves. Why? Because they want to be ready for their date. They want to look nice for their date. They don't want to shrink back in shame. You know, this this idea of Expecting tangible evidence of saving faith is really not a new concept, you know. I know people think it is, but it is the chief concern of the sanctified life, isn't it? Didn't Jesus say, pick up your cross and do what? Follow me. Pick up your cross, die to self, and follow me. Be holy as I am holy. Yet how often... The leadership of this church gets accused of being legalistic because we expect people to change. Happens all the time. Are we supposed to change or not? Yes, absolutely we are. Legalism, beloved, would be trying to merit something before God in order to be saved. But don't confuse that with sanctification, which is growing in Christ-likeness. We are supposed to change. No change. No change in the affections and inclinations of the heart. No what? You're not saved. First John. You know, the book is, there's three tests of fellowship for a believer. There's three tests of fellowship in that book. And the way the book is structured, it's not hard to understand. It's, it's three character attributes of God that determine whether or not you're in the faith, right? God is light. God is truth. And God is love. What does that mean? It means that if you know God, you will what? You will walk in the light because... There's no darkness in him, and he himself is light, and those who know God cannot walk in darkness. That's what John says. God is truth. If you know God, you're not going to lie. You will not be a deceiver. God is love. Right? And if God has so loved us, then who are we to not love our brothers? He who does not love his brother is a liar. So if you know God, it will fundamentally change you. Right? You know, folks come in for counseling. Their marriage is on the rocks. Their children have gone sideways on them. They're... They're being held captive by immorality in their lives. They can't figure out why life is so screwed up. And they come into us and we tell them what the problem is. And they tell us, well, you're legalistic. Really? We're legalistic. We're not the ones with our lives screwed up. See, some want accountability groups. They want, you know... People who have had divorces, they want men's purity studies. They want all these accountability groups so they have accountability with somebody. 
Who are you accountable to? You're accountable to God because God is the one that looks upon the heart and evaluates it. You could lie to my face and I would never know it. You're ultimately accountable to God. He knows the thoughts and inclinations of the heart. Let me read you this quote. It's by a guy named John Selden from the late 1500s. So this will take you back a ways, right? And let me just define something here. He uses the word religion. And, and in those days, when they talked about religion, they talked about really believing the gospel. Okay? So he says, morality must not be without religion. Religion must govern it, morality. He that has not religion to govern his morality is not a dram better than my mastiff dog. So long as you stroke him and please him and do not pinch him, he will play with you as uh, finely as may be. He's a very good moral mastiff. But if you hurt him, he will fly in your face and tear out your throat. See, usually the people who argue the loudest about lordship versus no lordship are who? They're the ones that have secret sin in their lives. They use it in an excuse to cover up their sin. Listen to me. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and looks like a duck, then what? Or it's a dragon doing a duck impersonation. There's really only two types of people here this morning, right? There are ducks and what? Dragons. You're either a duck or you're a fake duck doing an impersonation of a duck. Turn in your, um, turn in your, um, what do you call that thing? Bulletin. Turn in your bulletin. I put this very simplistic little chart here. I tried to do it myself. This will show you the magnitude of my brain power when it comes to computers. <laughs> I tried to do this and I couldn't do it. I had to have Jennifer Yan do this for me. So this is her skill here. I, I want to explain sanctification to you. I just want to take the opportunity here for a moment because so many people are confused about this. You know, they, they have this idea in their mind that we need to grow in holiness. You know, this, this upward trend like the stock market. Well, the stock market kind of like this right now. But, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? That upward trend, you know, you have pitfalls up and down. But over the over course of your life, it ought to, you ought to be increasing in holiness, right? Well, I put this down for you so you could see this. And I'm not a heretic. I ran this by my theology professor, and he liked it. So it, it must be okay. But notice that first block, unbeliever in the flesh. That's where you were before Christ. You were a zero. Okay? When we think in terms of minus 10 versus plus 10, we need plus 10 righteousness to be in the presence of God, right? And we're minus 10. So if you only add 10, you're what? A zero. You're still a zero. To get to plus 10, we need positive righteousness, right? So Christ died for us to get us to zero, to atone for our sins, but then he lived a perfect life for you to get you to plus 10. Okay? Does that make sense? You have the righteousness of Christ. So here you are, an unbeliever in the flesh. God does something miraculous and he saves your sin-sick, shriveled soul, and you go from a zero to a hero overnight. You are now in Christ. Perfect in righteousness. Perfect in position. You now dwell in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's a pretty good deal, huh? So this grayed out area up here, this is you being in Christ. You are perfect. You're saved. But 
You see this little squiggly line here? That's not my heartbeat. That's the noise level of sin in your life. Okay? That's static. When you first come to Christ, there's all kinds of noise of sin in your life. The more you give yourself to Christ, the more you read the Scriptures, the more you renew your mind, you ought to be able to shrink down the noise level of sin in your life. That's the sanctified life. When Christ returns and you are a saint in glory, what disappears? The noise of sin. It's gone. Gone forever. And we are now just in Christ. Praise God. Praise God. Our lives, our walk should reflect faith. Secondly, our witness should reflect faith. Verse 3. This is our public witness. It says, He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. And again, these, these three statements, they sort of work together again, expressing totality. That's why I was able to group them the way I was, because they express the totality of this area of life. Your witness. This answers the, the who question with, as in, who may abide in your presence? It answers it with three negative statements this time. You see the word not there, and they've, they've unfortunately, they've smoothed it out for you in English, but it's, it's a little more striking in the Hebrew. It's, there's three knots in there. It says, not he slanders upon his tongue, not he does evil to his neighbor, not he takes up a reproach against his friend. And that's balanced by the last verse, verse 5. It's the same thing down there. There's three not statements down there. And the actions here, like in verse 2, are habitual, characteristic actions of a person. So you've got positive statements in verse 2, and you've got negative statements in verse 3, it's not only what a person does, it's what he does not do as well that defines a man's character. You could, uh, you could divvy this up into three areas here too if you, if you want, even though it's totality is the idea again here. What we're looking at is your tongue, your temper, and your testimony. Your tongue, your temper, and your testimony. So your tongue. It says he does not slander with his tongue. You see that there? Interestingly, the word slander in the first phrase, it's related to the words for leg and spy in the Hebrew. Try to figure out that connection. But it's, it's somebody who, who walks around seeking little tidbits of gossip to pass on. Looking for information to pass on to other people. That's the idea here. They, they traffic in information to tear somebody down. They're gossips. They're slanderers. And the phrase literally says, he does not slander upon his tongue. You know what gossip is? Somebody define gossip this way. Gossip is confessing somebody else's sins. Gossip is confessing the sins of somebody else and overlooking your own. Believers do not slander other people. They don't. These, uh, these three not statements, by the way, these are objective and permanent negations, which means that they never, they never do these things, ever. Your temper, it says, nor he does evil to his neighbor. The word neighbor refers to fellow human beings, right? Isn't that how we've defined it in Leviticus 19.18 and Luke 10.30-37? The Good Samaritan parable. Who's our neighbor? Everybody. Everybody's our neighbor. And there's, there's actually a pun in the text here. It's, it's like a little play on words. It's a joke. Because... The word evil and the word neighbor are the same root words, just different vowel pointings in the Hebrew. 
So they sound the same, they look the same, but one is evil and one is the neighbor. It's kind of a joke. Kind of a joke. And, and the idea here is that evil needs to be connected with speech based on the two other statements. If you look at the text, he doesn't slander. And, and the third phrase, he doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. The idea here is that he doesn't speak evil of other people. Uh, why don't you turn here? I've had to sit for long enough in this text. Turn to James 3, 8 to 9 real quick. Let me just show you something here. That would be uh, page 1209 in your pew Bibles there if you're using one of those. James 3, 8 to 9. It says, No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Why do we not slander other people? Why do we not lose our temper? Why do we not do evil to people with our tongue? Because they're image bearers of God. You could look at Ephesians 4, 31 to 32. It's a cross-reference. I won't take you there. I'm running out of time. But I'll just, from memory, it's just put away all wrath, clamor, slander, along with all malice, and do what? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has what? Forgiven you. The word forgiving in that phrase, by the way, it's actually the word gracious. Being gracious to one another as God has been gracious to you. Third, your testimony. It says not he takes up a reproach against his friend. And notice the tightening of the relationships here. We, we go from slander, which is against everybody and anybody. And then we go down to this idea of evil to our neighbors. And then we go to reproaches against friends. Reproach has the idea of a taunt or a scorn that you would usually direct at an enemy. And he's saying, never, ever would even consider doing that to a friend. The reason why, I think, is because it's much easier to violate the trust of someone whom you are closer to. Is that not true? It's easier to hurt somebody that you're closer to. And this is just not characteristic of believers. As I said, there's three positives in verse 2. There's three negatives in verse 3. And the reason why positive and negative is because the author is looking at something here. He's looking at total sanctification, not just partial and temporary. He's looking at the totality of, of the sanctified life. These things should characterize the person the things that they don't do, and the things that they, I'm going to say it, do do, the things that they do and the things that they don't do both define the person equally. Nasty young people become even nastier old people. Would you agree with that? The seedbeds of it you can see in some people in their young age. They're nasty, they're critical, they're negative. And as they get older, you sort of watch them mature like a fine wine, right? And what you get on the other side is vinegar. Right? Nasty young people become even nastier old people. And the funny thing here is it's, it's not just talking about what a believer says. It's talking about what he does. What he does. He does not do these things to other people, and that defines his character. So there are sins of commission, and there are sins of omission. And so you can sin by not doing what you're supposed to do 
and by doing what you're not supposed to do. That make sense? We need the righteousness of Christ, don't we? But your public witness, this is all about your witness, it displays what you believe about the character of God. Your walk and your witness. And let me just say a word here to you parents in the room. Be very careful how you speak about other people in front of your children. I think to some degree or another, we're all guilty of this, aren't we? We criticize people, make fun of them. And what does that do to your children? Causes them to be judgmental, doesn't it? Do you gossip about others? Do you slander them? Do you speak evil about them? Displays the attitude of the heart. Does your heart ache for the lost? Or do you make fun of them? Do you extend grace to them? Or do you criticize them? So your children are watching. Your children are watching and they will imitate you. Like symptoms of a disease. And I worked around diseases long enough in the healthcare field. When you have the disease, the symptoms will show up. And if you have the disease of a sick heart, it will show up in your life. If you have, if I could say it this way, the, the cure of Christ's righteousness in your heart, it will change you. The symptoms will be totally different. So what does it take to abide in the presence of God? What does it take? I'm going to take you to one last passage. And I'm going to let Scripture answer it for you. 1 John 3. I'm just going to read this short little passage of Scripture here just to cap our time together this morning. 1 John 3, we're going to read verses 1 to 10. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin and practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Pretty black and white, huh? Purification in your walk and your witness is derived from your hope in Christ's return. If you have hope in the return of Christ, then attacking and killing sin is not burdensome. 
It's a joy. When I was a kid and my parents used to take me to the beach, and it was a very rare occasion, I remember running towards the shore, stripping clothes off as I went until I got down to my funny-looking shorts. But that's, that's what the hope in Christ is. That you're, it's like you're, you're running headlong to eternity in the kingdom and you're stripping off sin as you go for the joy set before you to be in the presence of Christ. It's like Pilgrim's Progress, right? You've got to lose that big pack of sin that's weighing on you all the time. We've got to do battle with it. Our walk and our works reflect faith. They merit us nothing before God. But they do reflect faith. If you are struggling in a hopeless existence this morning, if you are crushed with the weight of your own sin, if you are enslaved to your sin, and you have not discovered the freedom that comes with knowing Christ, And I would ask you to speak to me today. Give your life to Christ and the righteousness that he has will be credited to your account. You can be perfect in the eyes of God. You can dwell in the presence of God if you will but give your life to Christ and pursue him. Take up your cross and follow him. If you have not done that yet, then I encourage you to do so this morning. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so blessed that we don't even realize how blessed we are. Father, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Perfect righteousness credited to our account. Atonement and forgiveness for our sins, filling with your Holy Spirit, being called children of God. Wow. Father, we are a blessed people this morning, and we give you praise for that. Please help us, our Father, as your children, to reflect your character in our lives. Help us to mortify the flesh and to do righteousness by the power of your Spirit, for Christ's sake. We pray in his name.